Normally, I, I introduce my podcast guest with a long list of credentials. Now, Jane McLelland is a former Charter physiotherapist, but most importantly, she's a very intelligent woman with a sharp and scientific mind for getting to the truth. And her single and most important credential is she found a way to starve cancer and survive against all the odds and thrive. She's a wonderful example of what we all need to do. And really, I would say that what she's been pioneering is a paradigm shift in how to approach cancer. She has brought together the use of some drugs, uh, so we would say kind of off-label use of some very simple and relatively non-toxic, inexpensive and hence non-profitable drugs and natural agents, nutrients, diet, lifestyle factors. So Jane, welcome to my podcast called Thank Simple you. Wisdom for a Healthy Life. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Uh, I'm a tremendous uh, a fan of what you've been doing, but just to give people a context for why we need to really listen to what you have to say about cancer, what was your cancer diagnosis in 1999 and how are you? Well, that, that in 99 it had already spread. My initial diagnosis was in 94. So I was, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer and it spread to my lungs in 1999. And before I knew anything, you know, I didn't really between that period of time, those five years, I didn't know enough about other methods to actually help reduce my risk and reduce the risk of metastases. I had no real understanding other than, you know, just the basics. I was just told I'd be fine. And I didn't even really clock onto the fact that my cancer was even advanced. In 94, it had already spread to um, a great number of my lymph nodes and I wasn't doing enough. Um, and my mother died of breast cancer in 1996, which kind of woke me up to the fact that I wasn't doing enough and that I was actually stage three, what would normally be classed as stage three. And actually I had to put a little bit more effort into what I was doing. Um, and by the time I was actually diagnosed in 99, I was already starting to incorporate a few things into my um, program such as green tea, I'd cut out glycemic, you know, high glycemic foods, and I was looking after myself an awful lot better, but I still hadn't really, I didn't really have any proper understanding of, of many of the other things, but IGF-1 was something else that stood out to me, so I'd cut down on quite a lot of protein, of dairy, That's, and that's wheat, insulin like, like that. growth factor one, that's yes. a sort of major stimulator of growth. Cancer cells it is. love it. Um, they do. In fact, yeah. some cancer cells actually really like IGF-2 uh -huh. as well, <laughs> but uh, that's it. Uh, and uh, in 1999, you're diagnosed with uh, metastases in the lung. Mm. Uh, what stage was that at? So that's stage four. Once it spreads to a distant organ, that is classed as stage four, and the medical profession normally associate that with terminal disease. They don't see stage four at the moment as being curable. Um, so here I am. So how many weeks were you given to live, so to speak, on a normal uh, and, and An average survival for stage four cervical cancer at that stage is 12 weeks. So not long. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are 20 years on, a little yep. bit more, and are you cancer-free? Yes, touch wood. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that wasn't the end of my story. Um, because I was, I was starting to do more things. I added intravenous vitamin C. I, you know, upped my game level quite considerably. Uh, added aspirin, but it wasn't until 2003 uh, I got something called myelodysplasia, which is actually an abnormal 
um, bone marrow disorder. It's a, it's a type of um, bone marrow cancer. And this alerted me to the fact that whatever I was doing was not enough. Um, and because I have some medical training, I knew that there were some old drugs, and I'd already read about them, but I hadn't had the courage at that point to implement them into my program. But given the fact that I was now, you know, really teetering on a knife edge with my disease, and I knew, again, I would, if, if it actually changed into full-blown leukemia, um, once it's related to previous treatments, so the fact that I'd have chemo and I'd had radiotherapy uh, in quite massive doses before, that's why I had the bone marrow damage, and that's what had led to this problem. Most people don't survive long enough to get it. Yeah, that's so the point. So your immune system is shot yeah, to pieces. Yeah, it is, and it normally yeah. you normally get that about seven to nine years after you've had treatment and it's starting to affect more people because mm -hmm. people are surviving longer yes. so this pro this process of actually having myelodysplasia and potential therapy uh caused leukemia is actually becoming more prevalent nowadays because because of the drugs that are now being used in extending lives you are starting to see it a little bit more now your book is called how to starve cancer although i understand that you've written another one that is about to come out its second edition is yeah. about to come out. So the, the title is the same, except the subtitle is slightly different. It's called How to Starve Cancer, Then Kill It with Ferroptosis. Ah, well, we definitely have to talk about that. But yeah. let's, um, let's start kind of at the beginning. Otto Warburg, 1921, yeah. says that cancer cells have got altered metabolism. And this metabolic approach has been largely ignored in favor of what's called the gene-targeted somatic approach, hinging on chemotherapy that targets particular cancer genes and radiotherapy. Can you explain uh, this difference between a metabolic approach and the current sort of gene-targeted somatic approach to the layman? Is this where conventional cancer treatment has gone wrong? And why is the success rate still so low? Yeah, we are just focusing, if you look at traditional medicine and conventional treatments at the moment, they're very much focused on the fast dividing cell, which is kind of like the end of the line. When, when the cancer cell develops, initially it's going through lots of changes. The metabolism is actually something that gets altered first. It then goes through all these growth factors and things like that. The immune system shuts down and then you get the fast dividing cell at the end. And obviously if you look through a microscope and you look at a uh, cancer cell, you can see it dividing very fast, and this is kind of why they've become fixated with the fact that cancer is just a fast dividing cell. They're not focusing on why it gets to that point. Um, and back in the 1950s, Bert Vogelstein discovered the p53 gene as being instrumental in all cancers, actually. Some of them it's mutated, some of them it's deleted, but in some of them it just doesn't work very well. Um, and the P53 actually is uh, related to the metabolism. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way that it um, affects the cancer cell, it encourages glycolysis, which mm -hmm. is this uptake of glucose. It encourages glutaminolysis, which is a breakdown of an amino acid called glutamine, which fuels the cancer cell. It also stops something called the XCT antiporter. Now, this is uh, going into stuff which is going to be discussed in my next edition. Um, that this is a new pathway on my Metro map, but it's uh, it's something which is very much involved 
in this process of uh, bringing in cysteine into the cell, which is an antioxidant. So it's all about protection of the cell. The cell uses antioxidants to protect itself from cell death. Now, if we were to look at the process of how a cancer cell starts to the way it finishes, I've divided it up into sort of five stages. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, we're only looking with conventional treatments. We're mostly looking at the end stage of the fast dividing cell and not looking at the processes that actually lead up to that. So if we use a better combination to attack the metabolism, we can work on all those escape routes that cancer uses because that's the, the key. Cancer finds a way to work around whatever treatment you give it it probably has an escape route to get rid of it, to, to get around it, and so, that's, that's the key. So why don't we start there? How does a cell become a cancer cell? Ah, oh, well, <laughs> um, if you look at the beginning of oncogenesis, the beginning of, of how cancer starts, you can look at uh, several factors. Certainly the microenvironment, the tumor microenvironment is instrumental in triggering that change from a normal stem cell to a cancer stem cell. Now the environment is uh, normally controlled by your immune system, okay? But when you have uh, an environment that has too many pathogens, that overwhelms the system, when you have inflammation, you get all these triggers that stimulate something called IL-6 and IL-1. These are cytokines, these are inflammatory cytokines. Also, things called toll-like receptors, mm. bit technical, but these are pathogen receptors. So when you get a combination of inflammation and infection, uh, this all adds up to a sort of a, a, a melee which just triggers the cancer cell to start sending signals through into the cell through two key pathways, actually, mm. nuclear factor kappa beta and STAT3, and this then changes the cell into sort of doing some abnormal so it's, metabolism. It's, it's a bit like, I mean, number one, the way you're looking at it is really to look at the fundamental causes. Uh, yeah. last, last month, I interviewed Professor Robert Lustig, and he said, you know, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, polycystic ovaries, diabetes. These are not diseases. These are no. symptoms yeah. of what's going on underneath. And by the way, all our cells come from uh, stem cells. So those of you who have been following... Um, our work on fasting mimicking diets. This is actually triggering healthy stem cells from which, for example, the type 1 diabetic animals, the irreversible type 1 diabetic animals are actually making more stem cells and then they're actually making cells that make insulin. But what's happening here is that these um, uh, normal cells start to become, have cancer stem cells. Is yes, that correct? that's correct. And they are and the, the trigger. Yeah, yeah. So once you get cancer stem cells, they create daughter cells. And once the immune system is switched mm. off, because the secretion of the growth factors that happens like VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, mm. transforming growth factor beta, all of these things will then switch off the immune system. And that allows the cancer cells to start dividing more rapidly to allow the cancer cell is kind of like a vicious circle. Once you get to a certain point, you then flip into this vicious cycle of it then triggering more and more of the cancer metabolism because it's triggering these growth factors. Now, there's a, a, a kind of a view that is starting to emerge. Uh, perhaps it's a bit too simplistic. A linear view that basically these cells are reverting to an earlier form of, of metabolism. Uh, they can't deal with oxygen 
uh, they're very, very sugar hungry. And yeah. therefore, it's often said uh, that for any cancer, you need to starve it of sugar. And some go one step further and say no carbs at all, ketogenic diet. Uh, others a low protein diet, since protein, especially dairy and possibly meat, could, could, could trigger growth. But let's unpick this, because the same diet isn't right for all cancers at mm. all stages, is it? No, that's, that's correct. And actually, my cervical cancer was very much glucose-driven. So my low glycemic diet was doing well for a while. But actually, uh, leukemias are much more protein-driven. They mm. are more driven by amino acids. Um, and actually, the ketogenic diet doesn't work so well with leukemias. And... Um, uh, th this was possibly why I was kind of controlling one cancer and my markers for my cervical cancer were under the normal range mm -hmm. and yet um, something called my TM2PK, which is a, a marker for glycolysis I had done in my blood, was way above normal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there are other markers as well, but the, the, um, the, the leukemia, this, the pre-leukemia that I had, which was that myelodysplasia, I think was feeding more on amino acids. So that's why I was not really controlling it. So I had to look at a different approach in order to starve my cancer without actually having to, and this is why I called my book, How to Starve Cancer, without starving yourself. That's yes. my first book. Because you need to use other methods to try and top up the fact that you can only get so far just by diet alone. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's all very interesting because you know, there have been tremendously good results with ketogenic diets um, for things like, um, you know, certain types of, of brain cancers, the yeah. glioblastomas. Yeah. Uh, but that wouldn't be a good idea if you had prostate cancer, would it? Prostate cancer is actually quite fat-driven. Mm -hmm. um, fat is heavily, and, and they're starting to recognize the importance of fat, not just for cellular intercommunication for the immune system but actually it does act as a fuel as well mm -hmm. um, and prostate cancer in particular does really love um, fat I mean that's why they use as a tracer when they look at a PET scan they don't use glucose they don't use glutamine as a tracer um, they use choline which is more of a fat for prostate for cancer. prostate cancer right. and that's the way that they can pick up because that's one of the, the, on the, the uh, you know the oxymorons i mean the whole basis yeah. of pet scans is you give people you know irradiated glucose and it, it's attracted to the cancer cells and yeah. that's how you can find the exactly. tumors and then you say sugar's got nothing to do with cancer <laughs> exactly i mean it's a total nonsense i mean yeah. it's just like, wake up and let's have a look <laughs> and just yeah uh, it, it's totally nonsensical to say that uh, Cancer is not fueled by sugar when we have PET scans as being a primary method yeah. of diagnosing where the cancer is. Um, there's obviously a lot of fear and a lot of uh, denial, a lot of anger, a lot of emotions uh, around cancer. And I think what you're really doing, because people would like to say, just tell me, you know, what's the right diet? And I'm talking here about treating cancer, which is very different to preventing it. Yeah. And you might have something like, you know, Gerson therapy, which we might say is low in protein and has lots of vitamins and antioxidants and so on. Uh, but it, it really... You it's, know, quite actually. it's quite low and fat, actually. And again, too. melanoma is very... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they found a lot of good results with Gerson yeah. and melanoma because yes. it is low fat. Melanoma yeah. definitely likes to have fat yeah. in every single melanoma cell. It's got a huge blob of yeah. fat. So, so some approaches will work very well for some and yeah. not for others. And what yeah. you've done is kind of, you know, in a way, sort of personalizing it 
um, getting in there. I do recommend anybody uh, with any serious interest in cancer uh, does read Jane's book with a highlighter pen because there's an awful lot. <laughs> there's an awful lot uh, to take on there board, uh, as well as your fantastic sort of terrier-like attitude uh, <laughs> of not letting go. And in a way, your USP um, is is if you like, is that you've combined nutrients and natural remedies with drugs, often cheap off-patent drugs that Big Pharma has no interest in. Um, why? Why this combination? And can you give some examples? Yeah, so I've, I've kind of walked this line between what would normally be called as sort of alternative, which shouldn't be alternative, it should be complementary. So any change in diet, any of these other alternative, what were alternative therapies like intravenous vitamin C can very easily be added alongside conventional. Um, and I kind of decided that I needed to do both. I wasn't going to, because of my conventional training as a physiotherapist, I wasn't going to walk away from the traditional side. I knew it had huge benefits. Um, maybe we're over-treating with too much chemo, too much radiotherapy. Uh, that's probably a conversation for another time. But I knew that I needed to add some extra things into my cocktail. Um, and the research that I came across, I discovered a drug. Initially, the first drug I came across was something called dipridamol. That's an antiplatelet drug normally used to sort of for, um, it was used before, it was kind of like the primary prevention for um, strokes before statins became the mm -hmm. sort of the drugs du jour for that. Um, but dipridamol was um, something that I came across, I could see that it had huge benefits um, for the blood cancer and also it had this blocking of something called nucleoside transport, which is the uptake of these little chunks of DNA and the cancer is really lazy. It'll take up little chunks of DNA so it can make its new DNA for its daughter cells much easier if it can just scoop them up and actually just reuse them. Mm -hmm. It's very good at recycling stuff. And dipridamol was quite good at blocking that. And I could see it was quite useful in combination with chemo, although I didn't use it that way. Um, and I could see that it also, I mean, later on I learned that it blocks something called uh, Serep2, which is a, a pathway. And I used it in combination with a statin, not knowing that I was blocking two complementary fat pathways. So the Serep2 is one, it's a cholesterol pathway. The mevalonate pathway is another cholesterol pathway, which is blocked by statins. Mm -hmm. Now, I used lovastatin, which is one of the first statins on the market. Um, so I was blocking both cholesterol pathways. Every single cancer cell has to have a blob, has to have, it has to be covered in blobs of cholesterol. That's how it becomes, it needs that in order to be a cancer cell. And without the access to the cholesterol, I was really starving it of that fat but also combined, I was stopping those nucleosides. I then was using something called berberine. I was using quite a lot yes, of... Yes, tell us about um, berberine. It's a very multifaceted natural agent. It is. And back then, it's, it wasn't marketed as a single supplement on its own. It's you know, one of these compounds that comes from a plant. Now, the plant that I use was Mahonia aquifolium, which contains berberine, berbamine, oxyacanthine, and all of those things, actually all of those are anti-cancer. Some of them target more of the fat, the oxyacanthine tag targets more of the fat, 
The, the berberine also targets fat, but it very strongly inhibits glucose, and it's very much like a natural version of metformin, which I discovered later on, and I added metformin, which is an anti-diabetic drug, into my cocktail as well. So lots of different approaches, and also, you know, yeah. post-operations, uh, there's a massive inflammatory you know, reaction to yeah. and response. Yeah, really, so. really uh, stimulates metastases quite strongly unless you're very careful. So something has to be done after operating to bring that inflammation down. And I yes, think you've used and pre-op as well. And pre-op, and you, yeah. you've used both natural anti-inflammatories and uh, drug anti-inflammatories. Yeah. What are yeah. your favourites? So my favourite is uh, the one that I added, one, another drug that I added to my cocktail was one called Etodilac. Now this is uh, an arthritic drug, been used for, for decades. Um, so it's an NSAID? Yes, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Uh, aspirin is another NSAID, mm. um, but it's a more powerful one. Uh, and this helps to block something called the COX-2 activity. But it works totally. And the research I came across was that it made the statin five times more effective, um, or the, the non-steroidal five times more effective, at blocking the cancer growth. So that's why I used that as a combination. And it was working out the synergies between the different drugs so that I then sort of thought, right, well, the statin and the dipridamol work in synergy. They block the cholesterol. The non-steroidal and the statin work. They're five times more effective when you add them together. What's the effect of adding all of these things together? Mm -hmm. You then get not just a five times benefit, you get a multiplication of many times. Um, so it's all a matter of sort of, I was, it, it's not just a sort of an addition. So you get this multiplication effect when you, you combine different things that actually block different pathways. And the synergy is what we're missing in conventional treatment, we're not getting those synergies. We're not really looking. Mm -hmm. If you have cisplatin, for example, what does that what does that leave open? What pathways are you not blocking? What do you need to have in order to sort of synergize mm -hmm. to create a much better cocktail with those traditional drugs? Because it's always the underlying metabolism that's the key. And if you can block those metabolic pathways, then you are going to get a much better effect and because uh, you're going to be killing off the stem cell, not just the fast dividing cell, but the key is to actually get rid of the stem cell at the root of the problem. I'm not sure if, if you came first, um, but now we have the Care Oncology Clinic who've been championing certain combos of drugs. How yeah. is their research going? I mean, you must be in quite close contact. With uh, yes, um, I was in a lot of close contact with them when I first discovered them back in 2015. I was sort of amazed that there was a, a clinic that was effectively doing a, an almost identical combination in many ways. So I, you know, I was already on the Burberry and um, the metformin and the statin. I had, uh, they've got a, a nosteroidal called Flarin which is a liposomal form. That means a fat-enclosed uh, mm -hmm. uh, version of ibuprofen. And they use doxycycline, and, which is an antibiotic, yeah. and mebendazole, which is a very commonly prescribed over-the-counter drug um, for kids with worms. Mm -hmm. So most parents will know what that is. It's called, commonly called OVEX. Mm -hmm. But that has huge effects for um, anti-cancer as well. So it was their combination was kind of like, well, I didn't understand why mebendazole yeah. and doxycycline worked at the time. Yeah. 
Um, so that was kind of like, right, I need to work out why I've missed that. <laughs> so I then sort of stuck into the research and I worked out all the pathways. I then put together my Metro map and came up with my overall protocol and worked out the hallmarks of cancer in my own kind of way uh, and divided it into those five stages uh, so that I could then, whenever I learn about a new supplement or I learn about a new drug, I kind of put it into a little pigeonhole. And what's the top line of those five stages? So the first one is abnormal cell signaling. This starts with the sort of the tumor microenvironment. So we're looking at the oncogenesis at the start here. So we've got the toll-like receptors. The very origin. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got the inflammation. And then we've got, so number two is the abnormal metabolism. And this is where my starving cancer works. And this is where my metro map comes in, which is kind of like my pathways of how the cancer refuels itself. And if you block one pathway, I kind of describe it a bit like Piccadilly Circus. So if you can't get to Piccadilly Circus on the underground one route, you go back out, come back in the other way. So that's that's my metro map. So that's, that's kind of like cancer's escape routes. Mm -hmm. And this is the key to controlling the metabolism is, is that section. That's my sort of number two. if you start the cancer totally of sugar glucose, it's going to find another fuel source like glutamine, yeah. for example, yes. protein, yeah. or, or fat. Or even fat, yeah. 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 Um, so that's, that's the number two bit. The number three is the growth factors. So once this abnormal cell metabolism is happening, it's secreting the vascular endothelial growth factor. It's secreting lots of other growth factors as well. And these then trigger the outside of the cancer cell, which has got these receptors on. It's kind of like, this is the vicious circle yeah. where it then stimulates more growth it then stimulates these um, the sprouting of new vessels to supply it because actually what you're doing is when the when the cancer's going through this process of glycolysis, which is breaking down glucose, it produces lactate. Mm -hmm. Lactate is acidic, and the body goes ooh too acidic, don't like it, and actually that's why it produces these blood vessels to try and carry away some of this lactic acid, but the the net result is actually it's then supplying the cancer with more fuel. Mm -hmm. So actually it doesn't work because it's just then creating more cancer. But the growth factors are then kind of um, stimulating the cancer. They then switch off. It transforms some of those immune cells, which are normally anti-cancer. Because of the environment, it changes cell white cells, which are normally uh, anti-cancer called macrophages, into something called tumor-associated macrophages, and these help the cancer cell right. to survive. So, they, so they, they sort of take over the army. Yeah, and, uh, they totally transform and, the yeah. army and switch them yeah. to being on the cancer's side rather than your body's side. And that over-acidity, that lactin, that's probably uh, part of the basis. There are some approaches to cancer which are going very alkaline. Yes. Maybe that's kind yeah. of one angle. It is one think. angle, um, yeah. although the tube, you actually to get the tumor yeah. microenvironment can be quite tricky, but it does seem that sodium bicarb can have some effect on those yeah. immune cells. Um, so it shouldn't be completely ruled out. I mean, there was some thought that actually if you take sodium bicarbonate, it's not going to, because your body naturally has mm -hmm. this uh, pH adjustment, mm -hmm. um, that it won't affect the cancer at all. So there'll be some traditional uh, medics that will say it's a load of nonsense, there's no point taking yeah. sodium bicarb, but actually some other research has shown that it does affect the immune system. So that's step three, we've got four and five, what are they? 
<laughs> so four is the immune system. So once you've got this environment where you've got the abnormal metabolism, you've got this abnormal cell signaling, you've got these abnormal growth factors, this provides a situation where the immune system gets switched off. So the immune system is kind of number four, okay? So that's the kind of cutoff of the immune system. It, a lot of immune systems that would normally work against cancer become pro-cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the fifth one is the runaway fast dividing cell. And the way to attack that is with oxidation therapy. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're missing. At the moment, we use chemotherapy, mm -hmm. radiotherapy, and these produce free radicals. Mm -hmm. So we're using those to attack those fast dividing cells, but we're not using, I mean, yes, we have some immunotherapy drugs out there, but mm. they don't work on the vast majority of people. It fails because yeah. they're not looking at all those other factors that come so before. To, so to kill these fast dividing cells, we need oxidation. And what is the best way to get that oxidation effect? Well, this is where we come to my new approach. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is using, well, there are many different ways to oxidize. So traditional um, treatments uh, are chemo and radiotherapy. They produce free radicals. Uh, but actually, you need to tip it to a point where those free radicals overwhelm the cancer cell and it can't use enough antioxidants to defend itself. Um, and ferroptosis is actually using iron, mm -hmm. oxidizing iron, because cancer has this um, real avid appetite for iron. And this makes it, and in fact, the more aggressive a cancer, the more it needs iron. So we're looking at really aggressive cancers being really very vulnerable to ferroptosis. So triple negative breast cancer, uh, pancreatic. What is ferroptosis? It's a new word for me. Yeah. So apoptosis. Is you know that, what apoptosis yes, is. Yes, when a cell this commits suicide. Cell it's suicide. Apoptosis. Yes. Yes. So mm. this is actually not apoptosis. The way that uh, a cell will normally commit suicide is membrane blebbing and it just shrinks. But with ferroptosis, what you get is uh, rusting of mm -hmm. the cell membranes. And this includes the membranes of the mitochondria mm -hmm. as well, because they're made of fat. And actually, they can't, they thicken and they oxidize and they can't make the energy in order to create those daughter cells. So you're rusting cancer cells to death. Correct. Yes oxidizing them to death and uh, you can use different you can use supplements to help that you can use um, off-label drugs you need to have a slightly different diet actually um, for doing that and you need to prepare yourself a little bit you need to have the right fats uh, and you need to so that there needs to be a sort of preparation phase where you make the cancer vulnerable. This is where starving it in my traditional sort of first book yeah. <laughs> is important. But then you need to actually create a situation where it is vulnerable to oxidation therapies. And there are certain antioxidants that you need to stop for a mm -hmm. ferroptosis phase. So quercetin, luteolin, genistein, those all actually are very, and CoQ10 and vitamin E. CoQ10 and vitamin E are very powerful ferroptosis um, blockers. Mm -hmm. So actually, in order to create ferroptosis, you need to reduce CoQ10. And you're, you're making me think about vitamin C, which is a, a bit of a yeah. double-edged sword. I mean, at low doses, it's an antioxidant. We all want it. You know, yes. if you don't have cancer, it's a fantastic thing. 
but at uh, high intravenous doses, it actually switches and it, it oxidizes. It becomes Correct. a pro-oxidant and has yes. profound cancer-killing effects. But you don't want to be doing that and loading in loads of antioxidants. No. Well, exactly. Yeah. You've got to have the right... Yeah. To, there are some supplements, actually, which will be beneficial for ferroptosis. Mm -hmm. um, but there are others, like I just said, the genocide, the quercetin, etc. All of those will actually yeah. stop ferroptosis from happening. You know, during that phase. So, that yes. So, so, yeah. yeah. So what I'm thinking is that people should um, go through about a month of starving their cancer and preparing themselves mm -hmm. for the ferroptosis phase. Now, mm -hmm. exactly how long you do a ferroptosis phase for mm -hmm. will probably depend on what type of cancer you have, how aggressive it is. Um, you know, so with, say, pancreatic, actually, you're not given a huge amount of time to start messing around and playing with things. You may actually want to go straight for ferroptosis because what the hell, you know, you just want to kill the damn thing um, as soon as possible. And is intravenous vitamin C part of that? Or yes, yeah. it is, yeah. actually. Um, but low-dose vitamin C, because it's an antioxidant and it chelates iron, you want free labile iron. So you should pulse the intravenous vitamin C. So you're getting this pulse of um, what will end up being hydrogen peroxide in the environment so that you're creating that environment where it'll oxidize the iron. Mm -hmm. And artemisinin is brilliant because that also oxidizes the cell. It releases two oxygen molecules. So as well as helping to concentrate mm -hmm. the iron in the cell, it's a brilliant combination. Um, and then there's an off-label drug called sulfazalazine. Now, mm -hmm. this is an old rheumatoid drug. Mm -hmm. um, and this blocks the ability of the cell to pull in cysteine which creates glutathione. That's your master antioxidant. Mm -hmm. which, you, so, which I want, but if you're actually... If you're, in, you if you're healthy and you don't have cancer, glutathione is great for protecting you, for helping your immune system, etc. Unfortunately, with cancer, it is a wily, difficult beast, and it will learn to use glutathione to protect itself mm -hmm. from being killed. So mm -hmm. this is what we're trying to do. Is actually, it's a different approach um, where you actually stop the glutathione, mm -hmm. make it vulnerable to oxidation, um, and you can do that with um, this sulfazalazine drug. There is a supplement called piperlongumine, mm. which comes from long pepper, which also helps to block that and, um, and what transporter. I think supplementing with iron is too dangerous. It is mm -hmm. such a fuel for cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen people use it and get it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think you don't need it. Cancer's got enough, I think. So, so you just want to create free labile yeah, iron. So you, so you want to change you know, the diet related to iron as such. No. Um, but uh, whatever iron is there is being sucked in by cancer cells. Now you're increasing the oxidative environment. Yes. Uh, so you get this ferroptosis where the uh, sort of rusting iron oxidation. Yeah, and it cancers. rusts the cell membranes. That's mm -hmm. the important thing. And actually having yeah. the right type of fat, yeah. you then have to think about the type of fat that you have during mm -hmm. that ferroptosis phase because monounsaturated fats are no good. Mm -hmm. You actually want polyunsaturated fats, and particularly ones, ones that actually oxidize very they readily. Oxidize. So the yes. more double bonds you've got in a fat, the more liquid, if you I'm like. I'm talking the, to the a genius is. about this. So uh, you know more about this than it me. It oxidizes. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. What you're, um, what, so what you're looking at are things like 
the fish oils, but mm-hmm. you don't normally fish oils are uh, they have antioxidants with them. They they normally come with tocopherols in there. Vitamin E. To vitamin E. Them. Yeah, yes, yeah. to protect protect them from oxidizing. Um, so actually, if you can't get um, fish oils without vitamin E, which is unlikely. Cod liver oil actually is better because mm. it has um, vitamin A and D normally mm. as part of its antioxidant. And that's not quite such a strong ferroptosis blocker. Mm-hmm. So uh, cod liver oil is better for a ferroptosis phase. Walnut oil, flaxseed oil, mm-hmm. those actually oxidize quite readily. And all of this is going to be in your new book. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> when does it come out? Um, soon. Okay. <laughs> so the printers. We'll let everyone, so, yeah, we'll let everyone I will have, know. I will have yeah. a link on my uh, website, which is House Staff Cancer. Now, um, what's your take on chemosensitivity testing, such as RGGC? This, by the way, is a process. Uh, the, sort of, the sort of talk there is that the primary tumor rarely kills anyone. It's the breakaway circulating tumor cells that do the metastases. They yeah. may behave differently. You can collect them in a blood sample. You can then gene sequence them to understand exactly how they're behaving. You can then expose them to both the drugs, chemo agents, and the natural agents and find out which ones are A, cytotoxic, i.e. kill them, B, inhibit their growth, uh, and C, affect the immune system in a positive way. What's your take on that? Um, It was never around in my day, so it's not something I personally experience or tested on myself yes and i've never had circulating tumor cell assays done Mm -hmm. in fact it's probably something i probably should do at some point um there are quite a few of these companies now emerging with and the nhs is actually doing trials on circulating tumor cells good they're starting to really look at that ctc measure yeah 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 actually one of the other things they need to be looking at are the circulating micro RNA. These are really short mm-hmm. uh, RNA. Uh, it's not messenger RNA. These are micro RNA, and these carry information uh, to the cell to actually transform. That is part of so the. So they're sort of, of breakaway communication chemicals from the cancer cells. Yeah, is is yeah. information that comes. They yeah. they are very much related to epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So the surrounding. Um, again, like I said at the beginning, it was all about the microenvironment, and the microenvironment triggers certain signals to go into the cell to change these to, to actually signal yeah. different processes. And one of the the ways they do that is with these micro RNA. These are the ones that carry information. And when you have particular micro RNA being circulated around, actually they've shown that the uh, you can accurately predict if you're going to have a particular type of cancer mm-hmm. in 10 years time mm-hmm. which is quite exciting so you know we're looking at a new frontier of of testing i think in the future which is it's all going to change in the next five years well yeah i mean i think in a sense you're kind of describing a process to go through to starve a cancer and to kill it and mm. And then reconstitute your immune system, which of course is absolutely, you know, vital as well. I mean, yeah. some of the drugs you're talking about, of course, uh, you know, have their own toxicity, especially on the gut. So you're going to have to deal um, with that at some point. Uh, yes, so, certainly doxycycline is not something that I use, but they pulse it mm-hmm. with the care oncology clinic protocol. So they give it for one month, and then you don't take it for the next month and that gives your gut it takes about two 
two weeks for the gut to recover from mm. doxycycline. Some people take it um, very long term. And they're uh, giving probiotics afterwards or anything like that? Um, they do suggest that you take probiotics between sessions. Mm -hmm. So uh, not there's probably little point taking them with the doxycycline because you're kind of uh, just wiping them out. Yeah. <laughs> but once you've actually finished your doxycycline phase, then you actually take mm -hmm. um, a big hit of, I, I would suggest you take quite a strong hit of both bifido and lactobacilli, which seem to be the two key strains that are really mm -hmm. key for booting up the immune system. Yes, I've, I've uh, seen a lot of RGC tests, you know, on, mm. on uh, people going through cancer. And it's really fascinating because for some, vitamin C is massively indicated, but not all. Well, I, th yeah. I think yeah. part of the problem with that kind of testing is they do test one item at a time. Mm -hmm. And this is not how cancer works. You know, in order to get something that works, you need synergy between at least two things, if not, you know, several. And that's my approach is that, That's kind of your, your metro map, which looks like yeah, a, a pyramid. A you know, yeah. one side of the proteins that cancer cells feed, on another side is the glucose, the other side of the fats, yeah. and all the different pathways. Yeah. So you may do a, a you know, it's a, a very good, it's certainly every oncologist I know has been, uh, you know, they like the additional information they get with something like this chemosensitivity testing. Mm. But if you, you kind of have to have that information together with the map, yeah. So you understand yeah. that you are attacking on all sides. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But there are other things. I mean, if you look at, um, they've recently looked at ivermectin, mm -hmm. which is also appearing on my metro map. But, me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they've realized that ivermectin on its own, if they've been looking at triple negative breast cancer on its own, if you tested it, doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. In combination with PDL1 inhibitors, mm -hmm. boom, because what happens is ivermectin makes the cancer a hot tumor. Mm -hmm. So hot tumors are sort of responding, they will respond to immunotherapy. And this is all the point. This is sort of you need to make the cancer respond. It changes the metabolism of the cancer to make it respond to something. So on its own, and this is the problem with a lot of this testing, is they're not looking at the uh, overall effect of combinations. Also, they're not looking at the overall effect on the metabolism because a lot of people get the results back saying that metformin isn't useful for them mm -hmm. when actually mm -hmm. it's reducing the glucose so on a sort of a global effect if you want to. So it's to kind of the it. interpretation it's, of the results yes, is terribly it is. important. And there lies a problem. How do you find an oncologist with at least a mind open to science, how do you find a nutritional advisor to help you through that maze? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, is it evolving? It is evolving. We have an integrated oncology is, group. And, yes, it is yeah. a patient-led yeah. revolution. It yeah. has to be because yeah. at the top, they are so busy. They mm -hmm. are so uh, overwhelmed with work and with the pharmaceutical companies telling them what to do, the nice regulations and everything else, they've, they've got their set rigid formulae of mm. what they can prescribe to patients. And then they can't, you know, they have very little time mm. to really go beyond that and actually look at anything mm. else. And I know, you know, when I talk to other people, patients are my biggest educators yeah. and oncologists really should listen to their um, patients a little bit more because I do feel there's an awful lot of snobbery a bit of mm -hmm. you know medical superiority and that they're not really 
terribly open to suggestions and certainly it's certainly not from a physiotherapist you know yes. I mean, I, mean I get got, you, you know you, you're massively active in your Facebook group which anyone can join and I'll put uh, all the links uh, in in the words for this podcast so so you can kind of plug into that we have charities like yes you know yes yes to life yeah, uh, they're very good we have yeah. cancer active you know these are all yeah. sharing really yeah. good positive information yes and you know myself this is not my area of speciality it's quite overwhelming so sometimes uh, you know just having the time and the knowledge to really sort of dig down deep tends to happen by people who are basically facing what they've been given yeah. as a death sentence exactly. um, and you know that's why people like you are really sort of breaking new ground. Yep. Now, two questions. As you know, I've been a long-term advocate of a low glycemic load diet. I pretty much avoid dairy. I say I'm 63. I'm still breastfeeding from another species of animal. Do you think I'm weird? Uh, actually, I, I don't you know, have milk. I, I know that milk makes cells grow. I know that all mammals, there isn't a single mammal who doesn't stop it uh, you know, once they've grown. Uh, so how important is this sort of low glycemic load, pretty much avoiding dairy, probably limiting meat a lot, I'm a bit more pescatarian. How important is that kind of approach in relation to cancer? It's very important. And um, unfortunately, the problem we have is that an awful lot of patients become cachexic. In other words, they start to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And this is because you've got these um, little things called exosomes, which are secreted by the cancer cells. We've got tons of them in our body happening all the time healthy or not you know we have little they're like little bubbles that come off the surface of the cancer cell and these travel to distant zones in the in the body and this tells other areas it carries these micro RNA to tell instruct them to do certain things so you then get this breakdown and um, you get a feeding of the cancer from different areas so you get fat you get glutamine you get all these things sort of being it's very hard to actually have a diet um, you can't just use a diet alone so I mean yes it's important to cut down on certain elements of the diet but actually you need other elements as well and I didn't discover the main key ingredient to stop exosomes is CBD and that's only something I discovered doing my research into phyroptosis I've always wondered why CBD was so good you know so couldn't work it out didn't fit into my I like to parcel things up into my little pigeonholes and it didn't yeah. fit properly just didn't fit and now I've done this work on ferroptosis I can see that it's stopping the exosomes which is key for ferroptosis you need to stop that because actually it exports iron and tells other areas to use the iron and to use this um, approach of sort of feeding the cancer so it stops the, um, it's one of the, the things you need, um, and, and that's why CBD is so good. And it's always puzzled me, because I've never mm -hmm. found it anywhere. This is only me digging around in the research to and discover. And is, is it because it triggers the endocannabinoid system, or it's a no, different mechanism? No, it's a different mechanism altogether. Yeah, that, yes, it has an effect on the toll-like receptors, so it yeah. does pigeonhole a little bit there, but yeah. actually the exosomes is probably its main mm -hmm. effect, because it stops these bubbles of little... Uh, micro RNA and iron and all the rest of it going off and triggering uh, cancer in other zones. Now recently we've been running five-day fasting mimicking diet retreats about 800 calories a day low in protein about 20 grams very low in carb 
definitely ketogenic. We're getting mm -hmm. people into ketosis in literally six to 12 hours very, very quickly. Um, relatively mm -hmm. high in fat, but really focusing on what's called C8 oil, which is the one fat that we make ketones from with all sorts of nutrients, high dose vitamin C, HCA, that's the um, tamarind, Garcinia cambogia. Yep. Carnitine we use, I haven't seen you mention that, chromium. Mm -hmm. Um, sirtuin activating foods, these are yep. the sort of broccoli, olives and all that kind of stuff. And research is showing that doing this a few times uh, has a very big tumor growth suppressing effect. What's your take on that aspect? This is, uh, obviously starving the cancer is, is key. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, all of those things will actually block some of those major um, fuel pathways. So the ketogenic diet, but actually they found that the ketogenic diet, um, after 28 days of doing it, is mm. when it's at its most, where it is most optimum at preventing mm. any further growth. But actually, if you look at 90 days of being on a ketogenic diet, it is learned to rework through mm. other pathways. So if you just stick to the ketogenic diet, by 90 days, you don't get quite back to where you were. You've still got a, mm. a cancer suppressing effect, but it is not as effective um, as it is at 28 days. Mm. 28 days is kind of like, which is why I say, do your starve protocol for a month mm -hmm. and then try ferroptosis when it's really weak. So so do a ketogenic diet for, for a month in this context rather than a five-day pulsing mimicking diet, five days on and then off? And... Well, I think pulsing in and out of ketosis yeah. is actually another effect which doesn't, it, it doesn't have... Um, it doesn't work its way around it in the same way. It's a bit like having a low dose of chemotherapy. Um, they've shown that actually having a high dose and then um, tailing it off is actually better because mm. you're actually not getting the salvage pathways. So these workaround routes that cancer finds, mm. it doesn't use those. If you're continually bombarding it with a very active therapy of whatever it is so ketogenic diet or chemo it'll find a way around it mm -hmm. but if you're doing a slightly lower dose or you're pulsing it then the cancer cell doesn't react in the same way it sort of eases off its ability to work around it and that's it's a better approach i think actually to pulse um in and out of ketosis which is probably what i did to be honest mm -hmm. i i don't i wasn't strict strict i mean i was um initially macrobiotic with my approach um, when I, you know, immediately after chemo, uh, when I got my secondary, um, I took that approach. But then, you know, and very low glycemic, uh, very boring diet I had for about a month, two months. And then I sort of worked other, you know, I came back to having slightly higher glycemic, not high glycemic, but sort of a, a still low burn, um, things like sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm which are great because they have something on the surface of them called conjunctic, con, can't remember the name completely, but anyway, it stops glycolysis, which uh -huh. is great. So yeah. that's, you know, that's a really interesting uh, fact. So always eat the, um, the, skin, the skin of the yeah. sweet potato. Yeah, yeah. Very and important. And alcohol. Alcohol. <laughs> There's uh, nothing wrong with a little bit of alcohol, I don't think. Uh, you've got to be careful about the type of alcohol you have. Obviously, anything that uh, is made from wheaty type things, I mean, the beer, uh, no good. Mm -hmm. No good at all. But I think a good quality red wine, organic red wine, um, a little bit, you know, maybe one or two glasses a week. I think you have to control your cancer first. 
once you've got it under control, your markers are not shooting up and going yeah. uh, haywire, then I think you can allow yourself yeah. uh, the occasional treat, and I think that's fine. Now, I wanted to ask you a technical question about vitamin C, because there's one bit in your book where you say, you know, ascorbate, must be ascorbate. And I'll put this in the context of a girl that I was working with who was having two or three times a week intravenous vitamin C. Um, and then followed by, we got her up to 40 grams of oral vitamin C. I know you've said you're not a tremendous fan of the sort of... The, well, the, the bowel... I've changed my view a little bit. But yeah, anyway. yeah, but I'll tell, yeah. You, tell you what we're doing there. Because I was talking to... We had a very nice uh, interview on the podcast with yeah. Tom Levy, who kind of brought in liposomal vitamin C. And I said to him, you know, if I've got, uh, you know, somebody who maybe doesn't have, you know, all the money in the world, what I would prefer to do is use vitamin C up to the level that they can't tolerate. The idea being that once you're not absorbing it, uh, it gets into the lower gut and it actually causes a diarrhea type effect. Mm. And then, so get up to the tolerant, tolerant point and then add in liposomal so right. I can get even oh, higher, right? right? And uh, mm. this particular uh, girl was therefore tolerating 40 grams. Because there is one argument, and I, I do understand this from the work of the wonderful Professor Jean Drisco, who's part of our group, that uh, you know you can't get to the really 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 high levels without intravenous vitamin C, but then some other people say, well, if you do the kind of thing I'm talking about, which in fact is 40 grams a day, mm. you might be able to get to that point where you have the pro-oxidant effect. Yes. So just a sort of technical question: Where are you at with vitamin C? Because um, I know you use it, you know, intravenously yeah. quite quite steadily. I did. Um, uh, well, off and on, I pulsed yeah. it. You know, I had. Um, when things got bad, I had yeah. a block of three weeks on uh, and then a couple of weeks off. What, two or three times a week or something? I had it three times a week mm. uh, for three weeks uh, and then a break for... Um, what sort of dose? 50 grams or something? Um, um, I was going up to 75. Mm -hmm. 25 to 75 is the usual kind yeah. of line, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of liposomal... Um, there has been a study which has shown that if you take six grams mm -hmm. every hour all day, mm -hmm. that you can get to that pro-oxidant level quite quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but it's quite hard to do that, and yes. it's it's not terribly practical. Yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, but if you're only going to do that maybe mm -hmm. um, twice a week, say, yeah. Then it's doable. So it's a short, sharp shock because that high yeah. um, pro-oxidant yeah. effect. and that's effect when you want to yeah. make sure you're not taking the wrong antioxidants at the same time. Yes. Because actually, they've even—I mean, ox oxygenating with exercise is really another factor we haven't really discussed. But you know, yeah. that is that is a, a really good pro-oxidant effect, particularly if you're mm. doing high-intensity work. Mm. So mm. you're really pushing. Uh, and, and working maximally if you can for just short bursts. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be very long. But they found that actually if you take the wrong antioxidants at the same time, you it, negate yes. the effect of the exercise. Mm -hmm. So in fact, pomegranate juice on its own, brilliant for prostate cancer. Yeah. Exercise on its own, brilliant for prostate cancer. Add the two together, totally cancels out the effect of either. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of getting this picture of, of, of cancer as this sort of enemy. You're like in a sort of kung fu match. And if you keep, if you keep just doing the same stroke, it learns, you know, yeah. it learns the way to defend itself. Yeah. So at every angle, starving it, blocking pathways, cytotoxic 
agents, um, agents that inhibit its growth, yeah. like dairy and IGF, for example. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of weakening it in different ways at different times. And probably now we do have more tests uh, for practitioners, and there are some very good ones. I've always been a tremendous fan of Dr. Etienne Calabou, who yeah, he's um, he's my savior, one yeah. of my saviors. Yes. He was he was instrumental in helping me survive because he yeah, he yeah. prescribed the dipridamol, mm -hmm. um, without which I'm yeah. sure I wouldn't be here. Yeah, and so. I'll I'll put the list to some of my um, favorite cancer doctors and also people who can do intravenous vitamin C, which I think yes. is. You know, I mean, the thing about intravenous vitamin C is it's so non-toxic to healthy cells. Exactly. And this ferroptosis, I mean, is that yeah. a process that is non-toxic yeah. to healthy well, cells? Yeah, well, actually, you can yeah. cause some issues with, yeah. um, if you overdo it. Now, you can protect those healthy cells. Yeah. So, I mean, ferroptosis has been linked to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So, we don't want to go down that route. But yeah. to protect the brain, mm -hmm. you have to take... Ketones, actually exogenous mm -hmm. ketones, beta-hydroxybutyric acid, mm -hmm. brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and these are HDAC inhibitors, so these are histone uh, deacetylase inhibitors. Um, so the butyric acid and something called sodium valproate, mm -hmm. these are both going to be protective of your healthy cells. Uh, so you need to do that alongside. Something I always measure as well is homocysteine. Funny you should mention that, that because homocysteine is critical for getting ferroptosis. You need to lower it because mm -hmm. homocysteine provides, through something called the transsulfuration pathway, will mm -hmm. provide cysteine mm -hmm. to the cell to make glutathione. So actually you need to block and make sure the homocysteine, and this is part of the preparation phase before you go for a ferroptosis phase, mm -hmm. is to actually lower your homocysteine levels to make sure that it doesn't compensate. Again, it's one of these salvage pathways mm -hmm. that cancer learns to use in order to compensate for trying ferroptosis. It'll go, nah, I'll just use the homocysteine instead just to reboot my uh, glutathione levels. And then you don't get the ferroptosis. So actually reducing homocysteine is uh, really important. And methionine mm -hmm. is another one because methionine can actually through this um, transsulfuration pathway can produce the homocysteine and the, you then get a, a problem with, with um, inhibiting the ferroptosis. So methionine-free diet, actually, mm. when you're doing ferroptosis, which is essentially a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. um, so slightly different. Yeah. Um, but you can allow things like, because you actually want autophagy to happen you, mm -hmm. and you, you want... Um, you actually want some glutamate in the system as well because that helps to block certain things. So actually it's slightly different mm -hmm. to the star phase to sort of a, it's a little bit more complicated and people, if they're really confused by this, you know, I mean, I have got an online course which um, yeah. has diagrams, and, you know, and, and <laughs> much easier. Confusion is part of this process because I think, I mean, funny enough, I, I was uh, advising a lady and uh, uh, she had a, a amyloid leukemia. Yeah. And, you know, nothing seemed to be greatly wrong. She, omega-3 was good, vitamin D was good. She was already quite, you know, low GL. Yeah. Uh, but a homocysteine, which is a measure of methylation, and methylation yes. is a fundamental factor for anything to do with DNA, but also detoxification, yeah. was through the roof, almost 40. It should be kind of about 7 or something yeah. like that. And, yeah, um, anything 10 
Yeah. Ten, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have clear accelerated brain shrinkage at, at yeah. 11. And, um, Ooh, and not surprisingly, that. yes, that's, that's, that's the whole work we're doing now really right. on dementia prevention. And um, not surprisingly, because this is so common in people over 60, um, she was a malabsorber of vitamin B12. And that's right. the whole sort of stomach acid yeah. link yeah. or stomach secretions. And that was critical. Um, and it's very much linked to these, you know, these blood cancers. And then, of course, what uh, you already know about is that, you know, the savior chemo drug uh, for the leukemias is, is Atra, which is basically a messed up vitamin A molecule, yeah. hence patentable and profitable. And yeah. In studies, it's 15% better than vitamin A. You know, and of course, in the cod liver oil, you've got the vitamin A, you've yes. got the omega-3. Yes, exactly. Um, so, I mean, the message I get, and I hope you do uh, listen to this podcast, is that there's been tremendous advances. And we have to approach cancer um, and understand what drives it initially and understand that there are many, many, many avenues for starving a cancer cell, for blocking its ability to grow, for boosting the body's natural immune system. There's so much that can be done. And unfortunately, in my view, um, the worst results I see in people are just throw their hands up and say, you know, whatever I'm told to do, I'll do it, I'll trust the system. Uh, and although we know that, you know, the survival is sort of half, it's mm. just not good enough, no. really. And when you get to stage four, yeah. why shouldn't you be yes. allowed to explore a way to save your life? And yeah. it amazes me, the number of oncologists that totally shut down your... Um, they say, don't look on Facebook, don't look at Google, don't yeah. do any of that, you'll just be... Yeah. causing your own demise where they need to open their eyes and look at the science that's out there now. Things have changed, you know, they have really changed in the last 10 years. Uh, the amount of information and the quality of information that's available nowadays, the research into the metabolism has kind of gone, rocketed skywards since about 2015 particularly, but I mean, they only discovered ferroptosis Mm -hmm. as a particular way of cell death, totally different to apoptosis in mm -hmm. 2012. Mm -hmm. So this is really new. And I'm kind of, I've been researching heavily for this uh, new edition of my book to actually create a, um, it's a new protocol, but I'm trying to introduce this to the world as a new approach because so far it has not moved from the research to clinic apart from, I know, one doctor in Cairo, mm. uh, an oncologist who's using sulfasalazine, using this approach really effectively. Uh, and there are a couple of doctors in Florida who are doing a modified version of it as well. But I'm trying to pull everything together into a sort of a much more um, thorough approach so that you know where those escape routes are, you know the salvage pathways that cancer is going to use in order to, to block your attempts at ferroptosis. Plus, you need to know how to protect your healthy selves as well, which we discussed. But, you know, it's, it's creating a protocol that's going to work. And particularly for these really aggressive cancers, the more aggressive the cancer, the more it's going to respond. So, you know, it's an exciting new approach, which I think has huge potential. Well, it certainly is. And for those who are in that stage, please do take control. Um, it's your life. Yeah. Uh, I've so many times I've heard just the sort of blanket thing. Oh no, no, don't take any supplements while you're having any any chemotherapy, radiotherapy, whatever. 
Usually I just Google in PubMed where all the research is intravenous vitamin C plus the particular chemo agent and more times than not the two together actually really help. Yep. Synergistically work yeah. because yeah. they are both creating free radicals yeah. and they are both yeah. oxidizing that cancer cell and cancer hates oxygen. That is, yeah. you know, a primary thing that people need to mm. understand. Uh, and, and once you get to a particular level, it just cannot, it, its defenses are overwhelmed. So it's just getting to that uh, level of oxidation that is key. So thank you, Jane, for being this thank you so phenomenal much for ferret, <laughs> phenomenal ferret, this terrier who won't yeah. let go yes. of the shoe <laughs> and, keeps, <laughs> and keeps, you know, looking into the science to help us a lot. Uh, do get the book, How to Starve Cancer, or the new version that's about to come out. I'll let you know about it, which is called How to Starve Cancer. And then kill it. Then kill it. With ferroptosis. Yeah. You have to starve it first, yeah. make it weak, and then oxidize it with ferroptosis. I yeah. think this is a really exciting new approach. Get a highlighter pen, get two copies. Uh, give one to your oncologist. If yes, they please. completely dismiss all of this, get another oncologist. Uh, because we're all in the business of saving lives and you have saved many. Thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you so much, Patrick.